One note to our church family here uh, before I start the sermon officially, I guess. Uh, she maybe should have been sharing, sharing time. Just want to let you know, uh, thanks for your prayers for Les Yoder this week. Um, he is back home again, actually, um, and is recovering. So praise the Lord that they were able to get, take the tumor out, and praise the Lord that he's back home. Well, I hope you have your Bible this morning, and if so, I would ask you to open it to the book of Nehemiah. We are, though we had a one-week break because of uh, last week's uh, message or focus on missions, uh, this is really part two of the same message that I started off two weeks ago called Nehemiah's Reforms, and we're in Nehemiah chapter 5. We're going to read the rest of chapter 5 today, and if you will recall, this is a moment where Nehemiah uh, is, is taking a sort of a, he's describing the rebuilding of the wall and the opposition they're facing, and as he's doing that, he's, he's taking a bit of a pause and saying, hey, I want you to know something. These are, these are my words, not his. I want you to know something, that that though we were concerned about the outward rebuilding, like we're rebuilding the wall so that we have safety and security and the city of Jerusalem is defined, though we were, uh, were concerned about that, I was also concerned about the internal things that were happening in the people of Israel. I was also concerned about reformation or reforming or rebuilding those things. And he gives some examples. Uh, he gave the one specific example last week. We're going to see that he's now going to take sort of a step back and say, hey, that's not the only thing. That, that was sort of one case. But I want you to see other things that I thought were important that if we're really going to establish our identity as the people of God, it's more than just putting up physical things around us. I shared that two weeks ago. Nehemiah chapter 5, starting in verse 14. Hopefully you have your Bible open now. Please follow along carefully as I read the last parts of this chapter. Nehemiah goes on. Now, we had a little break, but he went right on. He, he talked about how he had this, this uh, interchange with the leaders and the priests, and, and they said they were not going to charge interest. They were not going to uh, put each other in difficult situations based on their position. They weren't going to take advantage of those that were vulnerable. And then he says this, Moreover, Verse 14, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their, for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance." Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. God, would you teach us today through your word what you have to say? Would you help us to understand this text as it relates to Nehemiah and the days of old? Would you help us understand this text as it may relate to us today in our lives? We receive what you want to teach us. May you be in control through the Holy Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So we learn right from the get-go, as, as Nehemiah talks about this, we learn from the get-go that as he came, this has uh, maybe been implied before, but it's explicitly stated at this point, that as he came, he became the governor of the area. He, that when he came, he came with the king Artaxerxes' blessings, that he, in fact, should be in charge of this area. Now, you understand, this is probably where some of this, this opposition is coming from, because they don't want him. They want... They, that opposition is coming from other people who thought they were in charge or wanted to be in charge or, or wanted to, ex, or wanted to uh, expand their influence, if I can get that out, spit out correctly. So we also learn from this uh, text here that Nehemiah dwelt here in Jerusalem for at least 12 years. We're going to find out in the next uh, a little bit here that when the walls finished, that actually didn't take that long. It didn't take that long, but Nehemiah stayed there, and we should see that some of the things we're reading about, these, these reforms that happened, those happened over some of that time span, not just all in that first 52 days, uh, as we're going to find out that the wall went, uh, when the wall went, was finished up. But here's things that Nehemiah did. We also know, because we're going to find out later on in, in the text, that, that Nehemiah, when he traveled back to Artaxerxes, he made periodic visits coming back. But here's what he's trying to say. He said, when I got here and I became governor, this is my, this is my paraphrase, when I got here and I became governor, I realized that not only in this matter of charging interest to our own people and taking advantage of, their, of their, uh, their, their scarcity, their lack that they had, not only was that an example, but all, in all kinds of ways, we had lost what God had wanted us to be. If I were to put it this way, he would say we had adopted the way of the world around us. And you'll see some of the things I'm going to refer to in a bit that were indications of what the people around them did. And let me just say this, make sure you understand this. When we say we had, that they adopted the ways of the world around them, I think we should understand that it's not that their flesh, the Jewish people's flesh, didn't naturally want to do those things like the world around them did. It's that up to, well, at some point back in their history, they had realized that God had called them out of the world for a purpose, and they followed him. I make that remark simply because I want to say the same thing to us today. Today, us living here, 2021. We are to be not like the world around us, but we should understand that does not mean that we don't have our flesh does not have the same desires. Like if, if we would be in the same situation as the world is, that we would not want to do it the same thing that they do respond the same way, have the same kind of authority or power or take advantage of it or get what we want or be selfish or, or whatever it might be. It's that when we have come to know Christ, when we are in him, that the Bible, according to the Bible, the old man has gone and the new man has come, which means we no longer operate by those same principles. Aaron, you refer to the fact that when we sin, we are slaves to sin. That's what the book of Romans is about, is that Jesus died and justified us so that we no longer have to be slaves to sin, which means we can now do what God created us to do, to live life how he wanted us to live, his way. And Nehemiah is going to make an attempt at getting them back here. From the moment that he was appointed governor, he said, I'm going to change some things from how things have been running. Now, we read through them all, so I'm going to put them together in a nice summarized list for us this morning. Uh, if you want to follow along, I, you, you should know this is here, but if you don't, I'll just remind you. On the back side of your bulletin, there's a little handout. If it helps you follow along by taking notes, uh, do that. If it helps you better to ignore that and look up at me, that's fine too. Whatever the case is, I want you to pay attention. Here are the lists of the things that Nehemiah changed 
as he was not just rebuilding an outside wall, he was rebuilding an internal, internal identity of the people of God. He said, when I was the governor, I did not tax those who were under me. Now notice he did not say that he did not have the right to do that. He did not say that other people hadn't done it. In fact, he said other people had been doing it. He said those governors that were governors before me, they laid a heavy law down, a heavy tax down, a heavy burden down on the people. In fact, I would tell you, this is pointing back a bit to the prior section, that's why they found themselves in the trouble they did. Well, they had to pay, you know, their tribute to King Artaxerxes. There may have been a few other levels down, but part of the problem that Nehemiah had in the prior text was that he said, listen, it's obvious people are poor. It's obvious there's, a, there's been a drought just a few years prior to this. It's obvious that we don't have stuff. And so for you as a Jewish governor to look at your own people and say, yeah, but you also have to pay me, is foolish. And he said, I won't do it. I won't charge you. I won't live at your expense. But he didn't just do that. You notice in there it says that this little phrase in there that they did not acquire any land. I put it this way because I think this is really the point we're trying to make here. He did not build his own kingdom while he was there. You understand, it would have been really easy. Sent as the man from Artaxerxes, like the guy, the guy with authority. He holds the letter that Artaxerxes sent that said, let this guy do what he wants to. He could have come and made his own personal kingdom grow. He could have said, I want that land, and I need that land. And by the way, this house I'm going to take is mine. And this works out really nice, because not only am I doing a good thing for God, I'm rebuilding the wall, I'm doing such good stuff, but I'm also making sure that when this gig runs out, I have a really nice retirement plan laid up. He could have done all those things, by the way. And the evidence was there that some of the prior governors did exactly those things. But he said, I didn't do any of that. I did not. Now think about this. Here is a man who has been exiled from his home country. I would guess that many of us, if we were sent, excuse me, if we were sent by God back to our homeland after exile, we would take it as a pretty clear sign that that means we could now start putting a house there and getting some land there and putting our own, putting our roots back down because God has called me back home. And Nehemiah said, no, that's not why I came. I was sent by God to do something, and I'm going to do that, but I'm not going to take land. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I mean, I mean the, 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 the reality is there's people living in that land, right? So for him to take land would have meant he would have had to take some from someone else, buy it, take it, whatever the case, even if he bought it. He said, that's not why I'm here. In fact, it leads me to my next point. He said, I stayed focused on the task that God had given me. Notice he says that. He said, I persevered. Excuse me. I persevered on this work on the wall. I didn't acquire land. And in fact, even my servants that I brought with me that were for me, I put to work on the wall. I stayed focused on the task. Now this week I did not lay out any of the uh, godly leader characteristics that I sometimes have been doing as we go through this text. 
of Nehemiah because there's lots of them in here. I would tell you, by the way, what I'm giving you here is actually a, a nice blueprint for you could apply that to every one of the godly leaders to say he doesn't take advantage of those underneath him. He doesn't work on building his own kingdom while he's, while he's supposed to be, while he's doing his own, his own work. He, does, he stays focused on the task. He knows why he was sent. And Nehemiah said, I was sent to rebuild the wall by God. That's what God, that's what God laid this burden on me. Remember way back from chapter one, this all started because some messengers, some people came from Jerusalem and Nehemiah says, hey, what's it like? And they said, the city is in disrepair. The people are in shame. And that grabbed Nehemiah's heart. So when he's there on the ground, despite opposition, despite opportunity to, uh, to take care of other things, so to speak, he says, this is why I came to undo the shame of my people and to rebuild the wall and to reestablish our identity as God's people. Now, I'm hoping this happens to you naturally, but if it doesn't, I wanna just, I wanna just make it happen or ask that it happen. As we go through these things, we're talking about all this history stuff. As we go through these things, and I'm telling you, we gotta be interested in what this has to say about, to us today about our rebuilding of our walls, the things that we need to look at in our lives. And Aaron referred to, you know, weaknesses or, or places we've fallen asleep or lowered our guard. You know, what does it look like for us, not just externally, but now also internally? And we have to do the same thing to say, if God has stirred our heart in something, then we can't let go of that. We can't get distracted by building our own kingdom and by making sure that we get what we can out of this, even while we do some good things, that we say, God has sent me for a task He's, he's stirred something in me, and I want to follow all through on that. I want to make sure that is taken care of, because that, if that's what God sent me to do, is more important than anything else that could happen. Not only did he not take from those people what he could have so that he could live, he went the opposite direction. He said, everything I have, I'll generously share with you. Whatever means I have, and apparently he was a man of some means, if he did not own lands... Somehow he put, look at the food he put on the table. Apparently he was a man of some means. But I want you to catch that he not only said, as your leader, as your governor, I will not put a, I will not tax you, I will not expect you to provide for my living expense. He went the other direction and said, I will also take care of you. Anybody, now this is a bit of the gist that's coming here. Anybody that walks into my house and needs to be fed, I will feed at my expense. And as you see, it's no small number, is it? What does it say? How many was he feeding? How many people do you think he was feeding? I hear a few murmurs. I don't have heard anything real clear yet. How many people do we know he was feeding? 150. How many people do you think he was feeding? Do you think that was what he was feeding or is there more? It says besides all the people who came from the nations around us. Now, I, don't, I would not stand here this morning and tell you it is absolutely definitive, according to the text here, how the words come, that that means every single day he fed that many people. But I would tell you, when he says every day at my expense, this much food was prepared, and you start thinking about how much food that is and how many people that would feed, that was that's enough food to feed a couple hundred people. An entire uh, oxen. Six sheep. That's a lot of meat, friends. That's a lot of meat. He had enough to feed, I would say, uh, several hundred people. And what remains is not only that he did, 
but that he was willing to do so. Pay attention. Listen. I know this, it's this, this is easy reading. It's like, I got this. I understand all this. But stop for a moment and think. Which ones of us, when we are in positions of power, act like this? Or do we say, well, I'm the dad. You go get my stuff for me. And it's mine. I can tell you some things that I see in my own life, so I'm not saying it for you. Or I get more because I'm the dad. That's actually a refrain that happens in our house because the kids complain if I take a little bit more than they got and then... My wife is always dutiful and says, he's a dad. He gets more. We operate that way, right? But we see that he understands something that honestly is all day throughout this whole entire book. That God's understanding of being in power is just different than the world's. Jesus demonstrated this so clearly, didn't he? In fact, he explicitly told us that night he got down on his knees and washed his disciples' feet. He explicitly told us that we should behave likewise. He explicitly told us the Gentiles lorded over those that they're in charge of, but with you it shouldn't be so, for the first shall be last and the last shall be first. He explicitly told us that he was the Son of Man, but he said the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to seek and save that which was lost. Nehemiah is only demonstrating to us what our Savior would say many years later. I will not live at the expense of others. I will not take advantage of what I can get for myself while I'm here. I will stay focused on the task. I will be generous with everything I have. I will refuse to burden people from me. Nehemiah uses his words at the very end. He says, the service or the burden was too heavy. And I recognized that and I lightened it. Do you recall, by the way, I, there's, there's something we should tie together. There's, there's, some, there's a little bit of bookend here. Do you recall, by the way, that after David came his son, who became king, and his name was Solomon, and after Solomon came his son, who, who became king, and his name was Rehoboam. Do you remember this little interchange that happened when Solomon died, and Rehoboam thought, how am I supposed to govern these people? And he went to Solomon's advisors, and he said, hey, how should I govern these people? And they said, hey, you know what? Your dad was pretty hard on people. He laid a pretty heavy burden because look at all the stuff he built, but they, they, he built it on their back, so to speak. And if you would lighten up a little bit on them, if you would ease that burden some, then they would be your people for life. And he went to his own buddies who grew up with him and said, hey, what do you guys say? Here's what they said. What do you guys say? And they gave him the exact opposite advice. They said, you know what? You should go to these people and you tell them, if you thought my dad was bad, you just wait. You thought my dad was tough? You just wait. I forget the exact wordings, but he gives, you know, you, you were whipped before, but I'm going to make the whips even more painful. <laughs> my, my little finger's thicker than his thigh or something along those lines, right? The, 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 the implication is if you thought my dad, if, if the burden under my dad was hard, I'm going to make it even worse. And as we know, which advice did Rehoboam take? His dad's advisors or his own advisors? He took his own, right? And what was the result? The result is the book of Nehemiah. A scattered people. Yeah, you can go all the way back and see this whole thing crumble apart and, and, and come apart and be devastated and they're exiled and scattered. And we're reading about this guy, Nehemiah, who is now restoring and, and working at bringing this stuff back together. 
And you see a bookend, right? Because Rehoboam said, I will not ease the burden on my people. And Nehemiah said, I will refuse to put more burden on my people. Once again, we see that the human heart and the human flesh that is wicked and deceitful and evil will always want to get everything it can out of anyone it can for its own purpose. But the heart yielded to God will always go the other direction and say, I will give everything I possibly can to anyone who might need it. Which, of course, begs the question, what kind of heart do we have? Where's our heart at? Who's in charge of our heart? What heart is ruling us? But I want to get to more because there's even more in this text, particularly that I think is very key. It's in the middle of the text, but it's almost like Nehemiah built up to it and made his crowning statement and then walked back away from it in everything he said. Because in the middle, I would tell you one of the most important verses in this entire text this morning, an important sentence in the entire text, is Nehemiah's reason for why he did all these things you just see right here. And that's in Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 15. I did not do these things because of the fear of God. I did not behave as the other governors had because of the fear of God. I did not do what I could have done because of the fear of God. I behaved a different way because I had a fear of God. And this is a theme that we should not too quickly move past. This is a theme that is found in every part of this book, all the way through, front to finish. Now, I know... I know because I'm alive today, I'm in the church world, I'm a pastor, I have some idea of things that get talked about. I know there is a gigantic push from plenty of corners within the church. I'm not talking outside the church, I'm talking within the church. There's a gigantic push to separate and say the fear of God is something you talk about in the Old Testament and the grace of God is something you talk about in the New Testament or the love of God is something you talk about in the New Testament. I will tell you, and I'll show you here in a little bit, but I will tell you I don't believe that to be true in any way. I don't believe in any way when Jesus came and died on the cross and came back out of the grave that he was trying to tell us that we should no longer fear God. If you don't, if you're not sure about that, let's just hang on. But this theme is all the way through Scripture. Let me just share a couple of verses with you where we hear this theme. There's, by the way, lots of them. I, I could have gone, <laughs> I, could have, I could have spent all the rest of today bringing you Scriptures about the fear of God. I picked just a few. You're welcome. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. We'll just put it out there like that, right? If you want to know where God's blessing lies, it's on the one who fears him and delights. Did you hear that, church? Delights in his commandments. Not begrudgingly says, I'll do what you want to, God, but I don't really like to. But delights in his commands. Blessed is that man. Psalm 147, 11 says, The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. By the way, notice I just said that we'd like to think fear was on this side and love came over here. This verse actually brings them both in and ties them, to, ties them together, actually. Those who fear him and those, and those who hope in his steadfast love as if they're one and the same, which I would tell you what they are. Do you want God to be pleased with you? Do you? Do you want God to take pleasure in you? 
What do you think, suppose for a moment, what does it feel like when God takes pleasure in you? How does that feel? What is that? What kinds of things do you experience in your life when God takes pleasure in you? And here in God's word it says that he takes pleasure in those who fear him and hope in his steadfast love. Let's continue. Ecclesiastes, that great book where the one who was all wise and he tried everything he possibly could to figure out what life was all about and how he could find meaning in life. He comes at the very end of it and says this. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13 and 14. The end of the matter. Here's the end. Here's the conclusion. The end of the matter. All has been heard. I've, 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 just, I've, I've looked into everything. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That's what, what, that's what the Bible refers to as the wisest man who ever lived. That's what he boils it all down to. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Verse 14 gives you a glimpse of the why. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Did you catch that? For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether it's good or evil. So if you believe that God is omniscient, do you know what that means? God is omniscient. What does that mean? That God is, say it louder. He is all-knowing. He knows everything. And if it says here that God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil, is there anything that can be hidden from him? Is there anything that you do that's not going to be judged by him? Do you think this theme, because this comes in the Old Testament, is no longer true because Jesus came? Well, let's turn to the gospel. I'm, I was going to read one more out of Isaiah. Let me put that one up there just so you can see it. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? You see there's a connection that's just being made over and over again. Fear, obedience, fear, obedience, fear, obedience, fear, obedience. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. But I want to get to the New Testament because I told you I would address this, uh, this idea that perhaps that things changed when Jesus showed up. But, and maybe just we'll start with Jesus' own words. Shall we start with Jesus' own words? I think it's a good place to start. Good thing, you know, Jesus came and said things to us. In Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, he says this. I tell you, my friends. Isn't it beautiful that Jesus calls us friends? <laughs> I tell you, my friends. But listen to what he says. Fear those, sorry, do not fear. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him whom, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. I mean, we could stop right there, right, and say the blunt answer to has it changed from Old Testament to New Testament is Jesus just answered it. Has it changed? Are we supposed to no longer fear God because he showed up? Well, when he himself tells us we're supposed to fear him, I think that's a pretty solid no. He says, listen, I'm going to tell you something. You should not fear. He's talking about this, this stuff that's going on around them, which is a fitting conversation for us today. This stuff that's going on around them. You should not fear those who are around you, even though they can kill you. They can take your life. They really can. And they probably will. But you should not fear them. 
Because after they kill you physically, that's the end. That's all they can do. And you might say that's a lot. And he says, but I can tell you there's something more that can happen. Much, much, much more. Of much greater significance. Of much more importance. Rather you should fear the one who after he has killed you also has the authority to send you into an eternal separation of anguish and torment away from your creator. Him you should fear. For there is one who can touch you after the grave, and that is God alone. By the way, the same reason exists, and it hasn't changed in the New Testament. This is post-Jesus' death, post-Jesus' resurrection, post-Jesus' everything, and Paul has these words to say. Romans chapter 2, verse 6, he, God, God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and, and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. I'm making the point to you again this morning, and I'm not discounting uh, faith. I'm not telling you that we are saved by the things we do, not in one bit. This has nothing to do with that. I'm simply telling you that when Nehemiah operated, he said, I do so according to the fear of God because I understand that I will have to face him someday. And Paul is telling you that has not changed on this side of the cross. God will render to each one. He will give to each one according to their works. If you want to pursue righteousness and glory and immortality, God's glory and immortality, he will give you eternal life. If you want to pursue evil and unrighteousness, there will be wrath. It can't be written or read any other way. I can't tell you any other thing. I wish I could tell you some other thing. It would be much easier and nicer and happier and we'd feel all more fuzzy inside because of that. It's just not true. Go back to this list. Take, take a look at this list. This is what Nehemiah did, and I'm telling you, all the verses I just read, blessed is the man who fears the Lord and obeys his commandments. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and obey him and trust in him, trust in his love. Uh, the end of the matter is this, that you should fear God and obey his commandments. Uh, if you're walking in darkness, you trust in the Lord because God loves those who, who, who fear him. Jesus, even, even reaching forward to Jesus and saying, don't fear those that can kill you. Think of what this means to Nehemiah. There's people threatening to kill him. Don't fear those who can kill you. Fear the one who, after killing you, can put you into hell. Because we know that God will judge everything. All these things are going through Nehemiah's head, and all those things are the reasons that he goes against the popular tide. He goes against what everyone else had done before him. He goes against what everyone else expected of him. He probably had a few people on his side telling him, you're crazy. And he said, no, I will not tax them. I will not build my own kingdom. I will stay focused on the work. I will be generous with everything I have. I will not put more burden on them. Because God is establishing his identity in these people. I can tell you, it is those things, the fear of God, all the verses we just read, that compelled Nehemiah to act the way he did. It is also those things that compelled another man who you're going to see when I read these verses behaves almost exactly like Nehemiah, only he comes in the New Testament. We read one of his letters already. We're going to now read about him a little bit more. It's the man Paul. If you uh, turn in your books to 
uh, 1 Corinthians, your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I'd like to just illustrate what I mean. Here's another man who is a bit like Nehemiah. This is what he says, Nehemiah, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 4. He's making a case to the Corinthians. He says, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no, no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it's written, and he quotes the Old Testament, in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Did God say that rule for the oxen? Oh, he's concerned about the oxen, but he's much more concerned about us. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? He's building the case, and he's right in building the case. He said, I deserve to come among you and work among you and have you provide for me. That's how it should be. Nehemiah could have come into there and said, because of the work I'm doing overseeing the reestablishment of this wall and this city, you should provide for me so that I can focus wholeheartedly on my task. He could have done that. It was within his right to do that. But as Nehemiah answered, so Paul answers, and he says this at the last verse, end of the last verse. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything. We endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. I tell you again, friends, we know these words. We admire people like Nehemiah and Paul. But will any of us be willing to actually be like Nehemiah or Paul? This, I, you may be tired of hearing me say stuff like this. I hope you're not. You may be tired of hearing me say, I, I feel like I'm saying it a lot. But this kind of discussion is so pertinent. It's so fitting for our time that we live in right now. Because we are so dominated by our rights and the things that we, that, that, that we deserve. And I'm reading you a story from the story of stories that tells us that God does not expect or want us to behave that way. And we say, yeah, it's a good story. Way to go, Nehemiah. Way to go, Paul. Stand up, folks. You can't take that away from me. You can't stop. You can't. No, 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 no. Listen, it's got to mean something here and here just like it does in here. Right? Friends, it's hard. I want to take care of my rights too. I want what I, I, I want to, <laughs> I look out for number one just like everyone else does. My number one's different than yours, by the way. You get that, right? You understand that. It's hard. But what blows me away is even in this context where they had every right, actually, for that. It wasn't just like they were grasping for rights that weren't theirs. They had every right to that. And they said, I won't. And the motivation, the rationale, the reason behind that is because there was a fear of God behind it that said, someday I will stand before him and I will have to answer to him about the things I did here. Which brings me to the last thing that Nehemiah said. It's an interesting thing. It makes perfect sense in the story. It's my final point for today. It'll be a short one. 
Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. God, remember. He goes to God. And I said this. makes perfect sense, right? Look at the things he said he just did. He goes to God. He said, God, can we put a marker in here? Can we make sure that you pay attention to this? Like, remember me for this stuff. Look at what I'm doing. Remember for me for what I'm doing. But my question to you today isn't so much looking back at what Nehemiah was talking about and how fitting that was. It's to simply ask that question to you. Would you be willing, would it be to your advantage, would you come out ahead if you were to go to God this morning and say, remember me according to the things I do? Would that be a good thing or a bad thing? If you were to ask God, now, I mean, understand, I'm asking this uh, theoretically because God does know everything you're doing. So it's, it's not really a question of that. But if you were to ask God, God, I'm willing to come ask you to make it, make it, put a marker in, make, make, make some kind of notation. The things I do, remember me for those things. Would that be to your credit before the throne of God someday or to your detriment? Kind of a sobering thought, isn't it? I say that because of what I just said. The reality is that is exactly what is happening. And please understand again, we're, we're, we're not saved by what we're doing. I'm not talking about salvation. Our salvation is in trusting in God, putting our faith in Jesus Christ. But we can't claim to have him as Lord of our life if we just keep doing whatever we want to do. It's not true. And then we know we will answer for everything. I suspect much like if you're like me, you will much more want to agree with the psalmist than with Nehemiah this morning. Nehemiah says, remember me. Remember what I've done, God. Remember me. The psalmist in Psalm 25, 6 and 7 says, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. For they have been of old. Next verse says, remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. Remember me for the sake of your goodness. Oh, Lord. Regardless of how you answered that question when I ask you, as we pray together now, I just invite you to use these verses to be reminded of the goodness of God and to know that you can throw yourself on that goodness and that steadfast love. If there's something you need to ask forgiveness for this morning, you should definitely do it. If for nothing else, a reminder of the goodness of God and the faithfulness of his steadfast love that you've experienced, you should praise him. And if you want to do that out loud while I'm praying, I really don't care. I think it's worth, God, is, God deserves, God deserves a, uh, your voice being clear about who he is and what he's done for you. If you want to do that by coming up here, you can. If you want to do that, I don't care what you, how you do it. I just want you to do it. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word this morning and the way that even reading about the histories, reading about Nehemiah and stuff that happened long, long ago, your word has this way of just coming across the ages, rolling across and coming right in the doorways, right in through this room and in right into our heads and our hearts. I love you for that, God. I love your word for that. But it's brought us again to this place where we have to recognize, God, that there is only one person to whom we will give answer to at the end of time, and that is you.
There's only one standard by which we'll be judged, and that is yours. There's only one person for whom we will be giving an answer for, and that is me, us, each of us individually. And what has come through so clearly in your word this morning, God, is that the things we do, not talking about our salvation, God, although if we need to be made right with you by trusting in you this morning, we want to do that, for you have paid our price through Jesus Christ. You have brought him back out of the grave. He is our living Lord. He's alive today. He's the king, still in charge, reigning uh, at your right hand, and one day will reign over all of the earth, all of us. But we're not talking about that, but we're saying we recognize this morning that, that the things we do or don't do need to be driven by the, that perspective that one day we will stand before you. That fear, and it is a fear, God. We're so grateful that your love has come to remind us that Jesus paid the penalty for us, that we don't have to face your wrath when we are hidden in Christ. Yet, we still confess with our mouths that standing before a living God is a fearful thing. For we will see, oh, we will see how desperately wicked we are, we were. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your goodness to us. Oh, that we, oh, the goodness that we don't deserve. We don't, it is your abundant mercy that allows us to have this peace and this joy of being right with you. Oh, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that the Holy Spirit whom you sent when Jesus went up to heaven, thank you that he will help us and does help us live correctly before you so that we can have the old man put to death, and the new man brought out in us so that we can look at you and say, remember, God, what I've done for my good. Remember that it would be a benefit to us. Even all of that, even all the good things we do, God, they're because of your grace, your mercy operating in our life. They're because of your goodness, your strength operating inside of us, your Holy Spirit. Even all that glory goes to you, which is why one day when we are rewarded for any of the good things we've done, we will cast those crowns back down before you to say it's actually your glory, God. For you alone deserve the honor, the power, the glory, the might, the kingdom. God, we praise you. We give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.